Hello again. So if you have your hand out there, you'll see our outline as well as uh, your Bible open at Acts 14 and we'll dig into this passage together. Let's pause and pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your gospel and for the power we see in this passage uh, that you worked through your, uh, your sent ones, Paul and Barnabas. Please uh, challenge us with these things and give us wisdom and grace to live for you. We pray uh, in your name. Amen. Well, today we're going to start with some divisive issues. Uh, these are issues that uh, the families and friendship circles and online forums have been debating for decades long. Uh, the first divisive issue I want to bring before you is cats or dogs. Uh, are cats better or are dogs better? Put your hand up for cats. Uh, just a few. Put your hand up for dogs. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Well, it's a very divisive issue, isn't it? Uh, our second divisive issue is Coke or Pepsi. Show of hands for Coke. Oh, yep. Yeah, there you go. Show of hands for Pepsi. We knew that was the case because Coke is better. Fair enough. Uh, very divisive, though. Uh, the third divisive issue is the biggest of all. Does the toilet roll <laughs> go over or does the toilet roll go under? I won't get a show of hands. This is too divisive. <laughs> I did do some research on this one, though. Uh, there are some statistics I read. Here they are. They're probably made up, but we'll see if that's true or not. Maybe we won't. Uh, apparently, 70% of people prefer the toilet roll over. So there you go. 20% uh, of people get agitated if it's not the way that they want it to be. Uh, and 19% of people have admitted to changing the roll over in someone else's house. <laughs> I think that's bold. I like that one. Well, what we've been seeing in the book of Acts is not the divisive issue of toilet paper, but the divisive issue of the gospel. Uh, there is nothing more divisive we've seen in Acts, and we see it in the world. There's nothing more divisive that, that parts humanity like the good news of Jesus, that he's risen from the dead. It has divided the nations. Well, let's think about what we see in Acts, what we have seen recently, so we can keep thinking about this. Last week in chapter 13, we saw the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, Paul went out on three main missionary journeys uh, to preach the gospel and to plant churches. Uh, and this was the first one. Last week, uh, we saw the first part of it. Uh, Phil took us, excuse me, Phil took us through Paul's travels from Antioch to Antioch. Uh, now, that sounds confusing, but that's because there are several towns called Antioch. Here is Syrian Antioch over in the east. This is Paul's home base. It's the, his sending church. He's their link missionary, if you like. And Paul starts all his missionary journeys from this Antioch, Syrian Antioch. And Phil showed us last week how Paul traveled through Cyprus, Cyprus, Perga, up through to the other Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. Uh, the confusion, hopefully, is now cleared up. Paul and Barnabas, what did they do there? They preached the gospel. And the response was divided. Many people believed. They came to faith and believed in Jesus for salvation. That's what the gospel brings. But what also happened? Persecution. The unbelieving Jews stirred up the people. They chased Paul and Barnabas out of town. And so off they went to the next town, to Iconium. And that's where we start today. So you can see from the outline where we're going today, the second half of this missionary journey of Paul, starting with growth and persecution in Iconium. So today, Iconium is the city of Konya in Turkey. It's one of the biggest cities in Turkey today. Uh, but back then, it was in the broader area of Galatia. 
So what happens in Iconium? Well, much the same as many other places in Antioch. There's division. The gospel brings persecution, yes, but the gospel also brings growth and bears fruit. Look at verse 1 with me. Chapter 14, verse 1. The same thing happened in Iconium. They entered the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. So things rolled out the same as in other towns. They rock up to the Jewish synagogue. That's where they go first to talk to those people who should know God and who should recognize Jesus, the Messiah. And then a great number of people, as they preach the message, a great number of people, a multitude of both Jews and Greeks, that's non-Jews, come to believe. So straight away, the gospel is bearing fruit. The good news brings growth in people as they, Jews and Gentiles, believe and turn to the Lord. But straight away, there's also opposition. Just like uh, before, some of the Jews refuse to believe. They refuse to accept that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. Their hearts are hard. They don't like what Paul's doing. They don't like the attention he's getting. And so look at verse 2. They poison the minds of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, against Paul and Barnabas. So there's that work again that we saw last week, that work of Satan, turning people away from the gospel, holding them back from hearing about Jesus and being saved. But what do Paul and Barnabas do with that? Look at their perseverance. Look at verse 3. When the opposition arises, they stay for a while, weeks, maybe months, and they speak boldly in reliance on the Lord. That's amazing, isn't it? How many of us would give up and move on from the very first time opposition raises its head? No, Paul and Barnabas, they stay. They rely on Jesus' strength and they rely on Jesus to keep them safe. They keep speaking. They're bold. They don't hold back. And then Jesus himself, it says, testifies to the truth of their words. How does he do that? He grants, he allows Paul and Barnabas to do miracles. Now, we don't know what the miracles are, but the best bet is healings, supernatural healings with a word or a touch. But did you notice how that sentence is phrased? The miracles of Jesus, sorry, the miracles of Paul and Barnabas are Jesus' testimony or witness. Testimony to what? Look at uh, verse 3. It says, The Lord testified to the message or the word of his grace. See, in one sense, every miracle that Jesus does is good and wonderful in and of itself. When Jesus healed people as he walked the earth, when he heals people through Paul and Barnabas here, if he heals people today, if he so chooses, each healing of Jesus is a wonderful gift from him. And each miracle impacts the lives of those people for the better as Jesus releases people from the power of Satan, as he frees them from the effects of the curse of sin. That's all true. We shouldn't deny that. We should rejoice in that. But did you notice that's not what the focus of the miracles are? We don't even know what the miracles were. It doesn't say. No, instead, Luke, who who wrote Acts, Luke and Paul, they're very clear that the miracles have a greater purpose. The miracles are a testimony to the greater reality. The miracles are witness to the gospel to the message of his grace, to the true healing and forgiveness of sin that we have and eternal life we have in Jesus. They're God's stamp of approval. These men are telling the truth. My gospel is true. 
See, from time to time, you'll encounter someone who claims to be a Christian, but they also make a big deal about miracles. There must be miracles today happening all the time, they say. Jesus wants you to be healthy and well now, they say. But here, Jesus himself has a greater concern than that, doesn't he? His concern is that people hear the good news of Jesus about him and have eternal life, eternal healing, when they're raised with him on the last day. That's the message of grace that the miracles testify to. The miracles, good as they are, they point us to the good news of Jesus. They validate it for us. It's his death and resurrection. It's that news that matters most. They're meant to bring people to believe in that message, to trust in Jesus, the man of grace. Do you know that grace? If you see any miracle in the, recorded in the scriptures for us, it's there so that you might understand the message of God's grace. That Jesus has shown kindness, laid down his life for you, risen again to rule and reign over all things, to offer you forgiveness of sin for all your rebellion against God. That is the message of grace. I pray that you know it. And if you don't, we want to help you find it. Come and, and find it out more with us. That's what we long for. But even more uh, than the miracles, sorry, I should say, even the miracles didn't persuade all the people in Iconium because now the, the persecution ramps up. The city is divided this, at this newfangled teaching of Paul and Barnabas and so a secret plot is made to ambush them and to stone Paul to death but Paul and Barnabas find out and they flee to the next town. For Paul, there's a time to stay and fight, and then there's a time to flee. So off they go to Lystra and Derby. But look at verse 7. Are they afraid now? Do they hold back? Verse 7, and there in Lystra and Derby, they kept evangelizing. They don't hold back. They keep sharing the message of grace wherever they go. We're meant to see Paul and Barnabas. We're meant to see their perseverance, their boldness. We're meant to see that the good news of Jesus is worth it, worth the risk, worth the pain that, they, that you could face. Because it's the message of his grace. And it grows and bears fruit in every place where it's proclaimed as people believe and are given eternal life in Jesus. Well, that leads us to the incredible events that happen in Lystra. Paul and Barnabas, they flee to the next town. They reach the town of Lystra in Lycaonia. This is still in the broader region of Galatia or modern-day Turkey for us. So have a look with me. We're going to spend a bit of time in this bit before we then wrap up. Uh, there's four or so incredible events that happen in Lystra. The first is in verse 8. Read it with me. It's deeply encouraging. Verse 8, in Lystra, a man without strength in his feet, lame from birth and who had never walked, sat and heard Paul speaking. After observing him closely and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he jumped up and started to walk around. That story speaks for itself, doesn't it? As this lame man who had suffered and struggled all his life, as he hears about Jesus, the Lord, the Saviour, the healer, his faith begins to awaken in his heart. God was at work in this man, and Paul, he could see it. I wonder if Paul could see it in his eyes, or, or could he see it on his face as, as this man was eager to listen to everything that Paul said. And so Paul sees this as a precious opportunity. 
He can help this man. Well, well, really, Jesus can. And he can show everyone listening that what he's speaking, the message of Jesus, is powerful and true. So by the power of Jesus, he heals the man with a word. Stand up on, right on your feet. Straight away, the man jumps up. And this leads to this second extraordinary event uh, in Lystra. The crowd there make a massive mistake. They misunderstand what Paul has done. See, Paul wanted to show the power of Jesus, the Lord of all. He wanted to validate the message he was speaking so that people would turn to Jesus and believe in him. But what happens? Basically the opposite of what Paul wanted. Look at verse 11. He says, When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the form of men. And they started to call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the main speaker. See, instead of recognizing that Jesus is Lord, the people conclude that Paul and Barnabas must be the gods, the local gods that they worship, Greek, uh, the Greek gods of Zeus and Hermes. And so this starts this crazy frenzy of worship. And the temple of Zeus is just down the road, so the priest of Zeus, he grabs a bunch of animals and reeds and he, he brings them to Paul and Barnabas to sacrifice them to them, to, to worship them, to pay homage. But now Paul and Barnabas they start to catch on to what's happening. At first, they probably didn't understand the language. and They didn't know what was going on, but very soon they catch the drift and they are shocked. They are horrified at what's happening. This is the opposite response to what they wanted. And, so they're, they're, and they're so overwhelmed and they're so desperate that they tear their clothes. In that culture, that's how you expressed great emotion, great horror. And they try to shout over this frenzy, this chaos. Paul rebukes them, but he also get, takes the chance to preach to them. We're going to look at his very brief sermon. and Look at verse 15 with me. He shows them why their response is totally wrong. Men, he says, why are you doing these things? We are men also with the same nature as you. That's the first reason it's wrong. They're not gods. They are simply men. Uh, but he goes on, We're men just like you, and we are proclaiming good news to you that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God. Now, there's just a few really huge things that Paul says in those few words there. One thing Paul's saying here is that it is good news to turn away from your religion. The Apostle Paul isn't and never has been politically correct. Uh, he says that it is good news to turn away from the religion of your culture, even the religion of your family, in order to turn to Jesus. This is a truth that comes up all the time in the Scriptures, and Paul says it here very clearly, that idolatry and false religions are worthless. Did you see that uh, phrase? He calls their religion, their worship of Zeus and Hermes, their religious practices Worthless things. And he drives the point home further in the rest of that verse. He says, Turn away from this worthless religion and turn to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, and everything in them. Do you see what he's saying? That there's one living God. That means the rest are dead. There's one God who made everything, not many gods who made different bits and pieces of everything. No, one God made it all. It's got me thinking, sometimes I wonder from time to time how Christians, how we think about and feel about all the expressions of religion that are, that are around us in the world. 
Uh, when you travel to another country, if you do that, uh, and you don't even have to do that to see these things, when you travel around and you see the, the tourist attractions around the place, how do you feel when those tourist attractions are, are temples and shrines and, and idols and religions in those different places you go? What do you think when you, when you go to somewhere like Europe or, and you see these massive cathedrals and monuments to Jesus but inside, they never listen to the word of Jesus and they never live for him. How do you feel when you see that or bring it closer to home? What do you think as you walk through Westfield and you're in the great temple to the God of money? Or when you scroll social media and you see the worship of the God of self, when you see those expressions of worship, of religion, how does it affect you as a follower of Jesus, as someone who's turned to the living God? This is something I wonder about because I fear that sometimes we don't have a right view of God and his glory, a right view of Jesus as Lord and King and Judge that makes us think we need to turn away from all those things. We need to not rejoice in or appreciate the things that our world does. See, sometimes I think we shouldn't enjoy those tourist attractions because they're actually tributes to false gods. It's not wrong to appreciate human ingenuity. It's not wrong to enjoy invention or skill or art. Those things are actually, in, in the scriptures, called God's grace to us. They're gifts. But when those things are made and used for the worship of false gods, and when those things keep people bound by Satan and keep people away from knowing the one true God and blind to, to the good news of Jesus, when those things rob the glory of God, and give it to a statue or something like that, shouldn't we shudder like Paul and Barnabas? Shouldn't we tear our clothes? Shouldn't we think and feel these things are worthless, those statues, those beliefs, those practices, and turn away from them? Shouldn't we long for people to know the truth instead? See, learn about religions if you want, understand them, observe them if you want to, engage with people about them, talk about them, uh, but do so with all humility and gentleness and, and respect. Christians are not better or smarter than other people. Uh, we are sinners who are just trying to help other sinners uh, find the grace of God as we have found the grace of God. By all means, do all those things, but, but have it firm in your mind. Those religions are worthless. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's only his name that can save and grieve for, for our world lost in sin and idolatry. Look at the way Paul puts it in verse 16. He says, In past generations, God allowed all the nations to go their own way. So that's what the religions of the world are. God allowing humanity, humanity to, to make up their own ways Invent their own gods and truth. But Paul says here there is another big thing uh, that he wants to show us in his short, desperate sermon. Uh, look at verse 17. He, God, did not leave himself without a witness, since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and happiness. So he doesn't just uh, say, here's the bad news, your, your religion is false. He says, here's the good news, there is a living and true God. The last part of the message is that God is still kind to humanity even though we've turned away from him. God testifies that he exists and is good by what he does for humanity. He sends the rain on the earth and the crops grow. People can eat and there is happiness in the world. Our world, yes, it is a dark and difficult place. 
But amazingly, God does give good things to humanity despite our rejection of him. Humanity lives and thrives only by the grace of God, only because he's kind and gives us good things. See, Paul is saying those things that you thought came from Zeus or Hermes or some other god, they actually come from the one true God. Turn to him. He made everything. He gives you all good things. Listen and listen and obey him. But look at verse 18. See, Paul and Barnabas can barely stop the crowd. And then another incredible thing happens. Another opposite thing happens. They go from worshipping Paul to killing him. Look at verse 19. The Jews who had plotted to kill him before in the previous town, they chase him to Lystra, and when they get there, they they whip the crowds into an even greater frenzy, and they convince everyone to, to go mad and throw and pelt stones at Paul. That's what they think he deserves for for speaking this message. They don't want this Paul, this Jesus, competing with them. And so they batter his body until they think he is dead. And they toss him out. Job done. Or so they think. Uh, Because another incredible thing happens in Lystra. Look at verse 20 with me. Uh, It says, After the disciples surrounded him, his body still and lifeless, all of a sudden he got up and went into the town, the town that he was stoned in, the next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. Now I think that's meant to read as another miracle of Jesus. Uh, maybe, maybe, just maybe Paul survived the stoning, but how could he then get up and walk a few days' journey to the next town? Uh, I think this is a miracle. Uh, but even if it's not, we're at least meant to see Paul's perseverance, aren't we? His devotion to what he was proclaiming to people. Uh, he, says, he says to himself, the people of Derby need to hear Jesus. They don't want to hear it here, so I'm going there, and I'm going to speak it there. So he gets up and keeps going. We're meant to see the perseverance of Paul and Barnabas. But even more, we're meant to see the power of the gospel, the, the thing that is driving and motivating Paul, that people need to hear Jesus. More people know, need to know the grace that he gives. So then Paul, as we move on, Luke sorry, tells us really briefly about the journey, the return journey, back to Antioch. Now we're not going to look at this part of the passage now, you can read that for yourself later, but what we see is Paul and Barnabas, they loop back through the towns, the towns where they've just been persecuted and established churches, they go through and they encourage those new churches that they've planted. And then they head back to home base in Antioch, Syrian Antioch out there in the east. Now, as we bring it together and wrap it up, there's two things that we can draw out from this chapter and those last verses that we didn't get a chance to look at. What should we take from a chapter like this? There's two things I think we can be doing, two big things we can be doing to live in light of these words. Number one, the chapter encourages us to rejoice in God's word and the gospel of grace. Phil said it last week, I challenge you not to be excited about these chapters of the Bible. If you love the Lord Jesus, if you love the gospel, the message of grace, then rejoice that the message has power to save. Praise God that he worked in those towns and in those people and he showed his kindness to those who turned and believed in him. And praise God that he still does the same today. And we can rejoice in all uh, the good things God has done in thousands of ways But verse 27 shows us a particular way that we can rejoice in God's work and the gospel. Have a look at verse 27 with me. 
I wonder if this sounds familiar to you. After Paul and Barnabas, they arrived back in home in Antioch. They gathered the church together. They reported everything that, had, that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Did you know that, it, that it's verses like that that mean we have link missionaries, CMS missionaries with, with the Church Missionary Society? And did you know that, that the reason our missionaries come back every three years and we hear from them and we pray for them and then we send them back out is was because of the pattern we see in verses like this. The whole church gathered to hear what God had done through Paul and Barnabas on their journey to rejoice and to thank God. And so we need to be encouraged, I think, to have the same zeal when our missionaries are around, when they return. Now, in a few weeks' time, we're going to hear from Lama, uh, our newest missionary. We're going to send him to proclaim Jesus in Vietnam. Uh, can I urge you, don't think, you know, when we have those nights here to hear from Lama, don't think, oh, that's a mission night. It's okay if I miss that one. Um, no, no, we rejoice in God's word. It's the job and the joy of the church to support and send gospel workers out into the world to proclaim Jesus. When we get the chance to hear from our missionaries, shouldn't we be eager to support and pray for them? Shouldn't we be keen to rejoice in God's work with them? So rejoicing in God's word, that's what this chapter encourages us in. But the second thing it shows us is how we persevere through persecution. Just look at verse 22 with me. As Paul and Barnabas, they looped back through those towns, this is what they did. They strengthened the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith by telling them, it is necessary to pass through many troubles on our way into the kingdom of God. What are the troubles that Paul just faced? Being stoned and left for dead. Those are the troubles that he faced. There are troubles as we face uh, those who oppose the, the divided world that we live in. But Paul came back to them and said, Jesus is worth it. The gospel of grace, the message, is good enough to hold on to. So persevere in faith. Keep going despite the persecution, despite the danger. What can man do to you if Jesus is for you? And I think this chapter also helps us to persevere in speaking despite persecution. See, that's what we see Paul and Barnabas doing, boldly speaking, evangelizing, proclaiming the good news of Jesus wherever they went, whatever they faced. God opens the door of faith in every place as people hear and turn to Jesus. Shouldn't we be stirred up to do the same? How can we not? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus and his grace. We thank you that he died for our sin. We thank you that he rose again. We thank you that that message is powerful, that though it divides the world, there are people that you bring to know you through faith in your Son. We praise you for this, and we pray that you would help us to be emboldened to speak it, to hold on to that message, uh, and to share it with those we know, persevering no matter what we face. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.